Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. This podcast is sponsored by Llama Naturals. I've mentioned them before because my family has been taking Llama Naturals gummy vitamins for a few years now. We love them because they use 100% natural vitamins from whole foods, not synthetics like most other vitamins. They are also made with real fruit and no added sugar cane or sweeteners, which you know I love. They recently launched their new and improved gummies, and honestly, I think the taste and texture is even better than before. Llama Naturals has a full lineup of gummies for kids and adults such as multivitamins, pre and probiotics, elderberry, and vitamin D. They are USDA organic, vegan, gluten-free, and allergen-free. You can save 20% off your first order by going to llamanaturals.com and using the coupon code JUST. That's J-U-S-T. My whole family loves them, but if you have a picky eater, they offer a 100% money-back guarantee with no questions asked. If your kids don't like the gummies, simply email them to support at llamanaturals.com and you'll get your money back. No need to send the products back. Seriously, you should at least go to their site and compare their label against any other gummy brand out there. They are the best I've found. It's llamanaturals.com, as in L-L-A-M-A naturals.com. Dr. Michael J. Bruce is an esteemed clinical psychologist recognized for the exceptional achievements in the realm of sleep medicine. Holding both the distinction of being a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, he stands as a trailblazer in the field. As the discourse around sleep gains momentum in our sleep-deprived society, Dr. Bruce emerges as a distinguished figure shaping the field's evolution. He fervently dedicates himself to raising awareness about sleep disorders and disordered sleep, endeavoring to create innovative educational initiatives and communication campaigns. With a private practice catering to athletes, celebrities, and more, he imparts his expertise to fellow sleep doctors and collaborates with major industry players, from airlines to mattress manufacturers, to elevate the sleep experience for consumers. Welcome back, everyone, to the show. Today, I'm really excited for our guest because he is so knowledgeable about sleep and everything that has to do with sleep. And I know I've got a lot of listeners who actually struggle with sleep. So I think this is going to be a very helpful podcast for a lot of my followers. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, And I'm excited. I'm always, always thrilled to meet somebody who's got access to people who need information about sleep. It sounds like that's exactly what's going on with your crowd. I have so many Mm -hmm. listeners for some reason who struggle with this. So like I said, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about this. But before we begin with all my questions, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, sure. So, um, so hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Dr. Michael Bruce. I have a PhD in clinical psychology, and I'm medically board certified in clinical sleep disorders. So that means I took the medical boards without going to medical school and passed in the specialty of sleep. And so I've been an actively practicing sleep specialist for 23 years, where I've been seeing patients in clinics, reading sleep studies. I've also had the very good fortune of writing several books about the topic, being on a lot of television shows, and being on amazing podcasts just like this one. And um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to educate people on sleep. 
There's almost no question I think I haven't been asked, but there are a few areas where we see a lot of new research coming out. So some things will be, uh, the answer might be, let's see what happens soon. But as a general guideline, uh, all bets are open, except I don't do dream interpretation. Ah, there you <laughs> go. Oh, that, that's awesome. Well, you have been on a lot of shows. I've seen you on shows. You are out there trying to educate, which I love. So let's just sort of start at the basics of all of this. Why are so many people struggling with sleep? And second, why is this such a health concern? So let's take those one at a time. So why are people struggling so much with sleep? Let's be fair. Sleep has changed, right? So I'm 55 years old. I, I was born in 1968. When I was growing up, it was a very different world. No internet, no mobile phones, right? The stress levels were very different. I'm not saying it wasn't stressful back then, but I believe that that the stress has evolved over time. And I believe that sleep has evolved over time. I mean, let's be honest, people aren't sleeping the same in 2023 as they were in 1950, right? right. So when we start to look at this, uh, I, I would argue that the second big factor other than stress, to be fair, people are getting bigger. People are adding weight to them and that weight adds to sleep disorders. So what am I talking about primarily here? The stress really influences people's ability to fall asleep and stay asleep, what we call in, insomnia. But as people get bigger and bigger, that affects another sleep disorder, which is very prevalent called sleep apnea. So what's happening here is the world is changing, our habits are changing, and unfortunately, we're not going in a great direction you know, when it comes to sleep. So I think those are two big influences that have changed significantly. Now, the other question is, is do we care? right? Like, it, it, does it matter that people aren't sleeping the same as they were back then? I would argue 100% yes, we do care. Um, the quality of the sleep that people are getting, I would argue, has changed. You know, for years, we always talked about sleep and how many hours are you getting or how many minutes do you have? I don't think I care about the number of minutes. It's the quality mm. of the sleep of those minutes that really turns out to be highly important. <clears throat> we now know and this is inarguable. I mean, the data is very, very clear that sleep affects every organ system and every disease state. Literally everything you do, you do better with a good night's rest. And by, and by good, I mean good quality, not just quantity, right? Because a lot of people can, you know, have a bunch of glasses of wine, fall asleep, sleep for eight hours, wake up the next day and not feel so hot, right? Because the wine has an effect on their ability to get into deeper sleep. So I really want people to start thinking about and let's be fair, you kind of have to do it every night. So why not do it, you know, the best that you can and, and, and maybe be able to get some, some leverage out of that. Okay, so interesting about it affecting every organ, every disease. But you talked about minutes or hours. So I know there's different yeah. parts of the sleep cycle. Does it yes. matter what parts we're getting more sleep in? Or let's talk about the different parts, what they are and how they affect us. Sure. So when you look at sleep, there's two distinct systems of sleep in the brain. One is called sleep drive. The other is called sleep rhythm. Okay. So let's break those down for a second. So they're a lot like hunger. So you ever notice like if you don't eat, you know, you're hungry, 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 you keep, you keep getting hungry. And then when you eat something, that hunger begins to dissipate. The same holds true with sleep. Throughout the day, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. And that builds up in what we call sleep drive. So when a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end. One of those things is called adenosine. Adenosine works its way through the system and goes to a very specific receptor area in your brain. As adenosine accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. But that's not all there is to sleep. The second part of sleep is sleep rhythm. 
So you ever notice how you get hungry around breakfast time, around lunch time, and around dinner time? That's the rhythm, your circadian rhythm for hunger. Sleep has one as well. Most people, at least here in North America, have a tendency to start to get sleepy somewhere in the 10 to 10.30 kind of range, right? Now that will vary based on something called your chronotype. So I'm most famous for this idea that there are four different chronotypes. Now, many people might not have known what a chronotype is, but you actually do if you think about it. If you've ever been called an early bird or a night owl, mm. those are chronotypes. Turns out they're genetic. You don't get to choose, hey, I'm going to be an early bird today and I'm going to be a night owl on the weekends. It doesn't really work that way. And so what we've discovered is if you sleep in that kind of swim lane of your chronotype, if you will, right? So if you're a genetic early bird and you go to bed early and you wake up early, turns out, number one, you need less sleep. And number two, the sleep that you get is of higher quality. So what do I mean by higher quality? So it turns out that when you fall asleep, you go into stage one, then down into stage two, then into stages three and four, which is the physically restorative sleep, back to stage two, and then on into REM sleep, which is the mentally restorative sleep. That cycle that I just described goes for about anywhere from 80 to 120 minutes. Usually you have about five of those cycles across the night. Now, if you take the average, which is 90, you multiply it by five, that's 450 minutes, which is seven and a half hours of sleep. So let me be clear, eight hours is a myth, all right? That is from long ago data that doesn't really make a lot of sense now. So I don't want people to get tied into the fact that, oh my gosh, I have to get eight hours. To be fair, I don't know very many people that get eight hours. Me personally, because I sleep within my chronotype, which I happen to be a night owl, or at least I used to be, going to bed around midnight, waking up around 6.30, notice I'm the sleep doctor and I'm only sleeping six and a half hours of sleep. I track my sleep with the sleep tracker and now I know how high a quality of sleep I get even in that compressed state. So I actually gave myself more time back in my day and I did it in a healthy way and I'm getting high quality sleep. Now you notice I mentioned stage three, four sleep is our physical restoration. This is when the largest amount of growth hormone comes out and for folks out there to remember from way back in high school biology, growth hormone is really important for your immune system. It's, it's kind of like bringing the car into the body shop and getting the dents and the dinks and the scratches kind of buffed out, if you will. That happens every single night. That's critically, critically important. REM sleep, on the other hand, is the mentally restorative sleep. This is where we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. We create a, a kind of an organizational substructure inside our head, kind of like a filing cabinet, right? So let's say there's a piece of information that we want to remember for the next day. Well, data is coming in through our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth. You know, we're going to actually store that into kind of your hard drive, if you will, um, and, and be able to then recall it better if you get enough REM sleep. So interesting. Okay, so do some people never make it through all five cycles or never make Great. it to REM sleep? So here's what's interesting. The answer to your question is yes, but more interesting, there are some medications that will actually knock out a particular stage of sleep. Now, many people don't know this, but uh, the SSRIs or the antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, Zoloft, Pro, uh, Prozac, Effexor, things like that, they almost completely knock out REM sleep. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wow. hold on, that's not good, right? right? I, I Don't I need my REM sleep? 
you do need your REM sleep, but this is one of the reasons why there's a real balance that we have to play. Because the problem is, is people with serious depression need those medications more so than they need their REM sleep. So there are people out there who via medication aren't going to get all the stages, but let's say you're not taking any medications. Do you still get all of the stages? You do, but as you age, the stages aren't as powerful as an example. So if I look at the stage three, four sleep, that physical restorative sleep in a 21 year old versus somebody like me who's 55, they're, they look kind of different, um, even though they're the same stage. So the, the quality of that sleep might change quite a bit. Wow, that's really interesting. I have so many questions. How do you know then how long it takes you to go through the five cycles? Like you say, you know it's six and a half hours for you. Right, so I track my sleep with this uh, ring tracker. It's called an Aura. And I actually measure my sleep on a fairly regular basis. Now I'm gonna be fair. A lot of these different tracking devices aren't as accurate as we would like them to be. The Aura turns out to be one of the most accurate in the market. They did a head-to-head study, Aura and Fitbit, turn out to do a really nice job of accurately looking at not only when you fall asleep and you when you wake up and your total sleep time, but the actual stages of sleep in there. But I wanna also give everybody a slight word of caution. When you get the, one of these trackers and you start looking at the data, I know what the data looks like, but I've been studying this stuff for 23 years, right? Most people out there have no idea what the data really means. And so don't get stuck on the numbers, look for trends. So I can't count the number of people who've come up to me and said, hey, Dr. Bruce, I only got 12 minutes of deep sleep according to my aura ring. Is that okay? Well, my first question is, do you get 12 minutes every night or is it different? Because here's what could be happening, right? It could be it could be consistently being inaccurate, right? So nobody only gets 12 minutes of deep sleep, right? But if you do and it's consistent, I don't think I care. But if it has 12 minutes one night and 400 minutes one night and you know 273 minutes the next, I want to look for the trend of what's happening. So don't get bogged down by the numbers or you wake up in the morning and your sleep score isn't as good as you would like it to be. Don't worry about that stuff. I tell people, if you're going to track your sleep, look at it at the end of the week, look for trends, and then we can come up with strategies to try to improve it. That makes sense because some nights I've got a crying kid that comes in the bedroom or I've got, you know, there's weird things that happen. Okay. Me too. I have a bulldog that sleeps in my bed and (laughs) snores in my ear. Okay. So like some nights the sleep is great. Some nights sleep is not so great. And I'm the sleep doctor. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So now back to SSRIs. Is that a problem, though, if we're skipping our REM every night? It does not appear to be a long-term problem. However, what your brain will do is it will force REM into your sleep eventually. So as an example, let's say you're on a drug that completely wipes out REM sleep for several nights. Eventually, your body will just push your brain basically into REM sleep. So for example, if you're taking Effexor, Zoloft, or Prozac, don't stop taking those. I want to be super clear about that. You never stop taking medication without talking to your doctor. But you don't need to worry because your brain kind of knows how to make up for that. But we also know that people with depression have di- very different sleep than people with other situations going on. But I would argue anxiety is probably a bigger problem towards sleep than depression is. Okay, good to know. Let's now talk about chronotypes because when you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, I don't think many of my listeners maybe know about this. So A chronotype is like if you're an early bird or you like to go to bed later. Uh So can this chronotype, though, change over time? Yeah, it can. As a matter of fact, I'm in the middle personally of my chronotype changing right now. 
So my whole life, I've been a night owl. Both my parents were night owls. My wife is a night owl, okay, which is probably one of the reasons why we get along so well. Um, And I just turned 55. And right around 53, I started noticing I'm getting tired earlier than I normally would. And I'm waking up earlier than I normally would. So what happens is, is when you hit age 50, 55 or so, your melatonin production, which is really what circadian rhythms are based on, starts to kind of go earlier and earlier. So for folks out there, if you've ever called up your parents or your grandparents and said, hey, you want to go to dinner? And they say, yeah, let's go at 4.30, right? Which is what grandparents want to do. It's because their melatonin production is early because they're turning into night owls. But everybody turns out to go through every phase of the chronotype. So when you're an itty bitty baby, you're an early bird or what I call a lion, right? Go to bed early, wake up early. When you're a toddler, you're in the middle, what I call a bear. When you're an adolescent, you're what I call a wolf or a night owl. Remember when you're, you were an adolescent, you want to stay up until two and sleep until two the next day. Then it sort of locks and loads around age 25 till about age 55. And then again, it starts to change again. Really interesting. Okay. So genetically though, I've got some kids that don't need very much sleep and I've got other kids that need a lot of sleep. So does this have to do with chronotypes or not necessarily? Well, it's, so it's a little bit complicated. So one thing it has to do with is, uh, is chronotypes. Another thing it has to do is what developmental stages that they're in. So some ages require more sleep. Some ages require less sleep just in terms of development and growth and things of that nature. And to be fair, Some kids are just different, right? So you could have two fantastic sleepers and then your third kid could just not want to sleep at all. The good news here is is that if you can get them to, number one, be educated on sleep and appreciate sleep, now that's not always so easy. So sometimes you have to motivate them by saying things like, look, if you stay in bed until 6.30 in the morning, then, you know, for five nights in a row, then we can go, you know, to your favorite, uh, you know, arcade or you can play a game or, or get ice cream or whatever, right? Some type of a motivating situation for your child, because even them just lying in bed and relaxing is actually going to be helpful and rejuvenative. Okay, so knowing your chronotype could really actually help you sleep better, correct? Yep, not only could help you sleep better, but once you know your chronotype, in my book, The Power of When, uh, so for folks out there, if you want to know your chronotype, go to chronoquiz.com, and we'll put that in the show notes for you to be able to find it. Um, it, It's actually quite interesting. You can learn the best time of day to have sex, eat a cheeseburger, ask your boss for a raise, sleep, drink coffee, drink alcohol. It's, it's quite amazing because we can predict with a high degree of accuracy where your hormones are naturally going to be high and naturally going to be low. And then we just have you do activities during those natural hormonal upswings and then you do them better. Oh, that's really interesting. So knowing your chronotype affects all of that. All of it, every bit. Let's talk a little bit about those hormones. So what's happening with those hormones? So everybody's hormones go in a very predictable pattern in a 24-hour cycle, but depending upon your chronotype, they all start at different times. So if you're an early bird and you like to get up at, let's say, 5 o'clock in the morning, that's when your melatonin turns off and all the other hormones turn on, and again, very predictable pattern. But if you're a night owl like I used to be, If you tried waking up at 5.30 in the morning, your melatonin isn't going to shut off. It doesn't want to shut off until 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, right? So very different when your body actually wants to start doing those things. And so then again, the predictability of the pattern is pretty easy to find out. Now, I will be honest with you, with women, hormonal patterns change a lot due to menstrual cycle, pregnancy, or menopause. 
So you hear a lot of people say like, oh, you need to start getting into bed by 10 or 1030. Otherwise, it's going to affect your circadian rhythm and this and that. So you don't agree with that. No, I don't. I, what I would say is figure out what your chronotype is and then you know when to get into bed. There is not one solid bedtime for everybody. Look at it like this. Like I know there was a big movement uh, called the 5 a.m. club where people would say, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and get all this stuff done. Only 15, 1-5% of the entire population can do that successfully. Wow. That's it. Okay. So don't give yourself a hard time. If you figure out what your chronotype is and then you're in sync with your chronotype, everything gets much easier and you get more time in your day. My husband's going to be so happy to hear this because <laughs> I might like go to bed at 10, 10 30 and he wants to stay up till at least midnight. And I'm always like, it's not Let good go. for you. Get to bed. So now he's going to be Let so happy. Go. Let him go. Okay. So good to know. I want to talk to you about some of sleep disorders, though. Like, for instance, so many people struggle with insomnia. Why is this? So that's actually my specialty is insomnia. Um, And here's the thing. At any given time, 33% of the entire U.S. population, that's 350 million people. So we're looking at 100 million people who are not sleeping well at any given time, with 10% of that being chronic. Right. So that's a 35 million people who have chronic sleep, you know, a chronic insomnia. So why is that stress, I think, is a very big factor. Right. I would argue 75 percent of that is either anxiety or depression. The other 25 percent is a combination of probably your environment, medications that you're on or any medical situations that you might have going on, like pain is an example. When people have pain, chronic pain, things of that nature, makes it very difficult for them to sleep. So when you're looking at insomnia, it really appears to be what we call multifactorial with a high emphasis on anxiety. Oh, interesting. So what do you suggest to people? If someone's listening to this, like, oh yeah, that's me. What do you suggest? So there's a lot of different things that we have to think about. But what I tell people all the time is, look, Sleep is not an on-off switch, okay? It's more like slowly pulling your foot off the gas and putting your foot on the brake. There's a process that you have to do. So number one, figure out your chronotypes. You know when to go to bed and when to wake up. Number two, give yourself some, some runway to land the plane. You know what I'm saying? Like so many people wait until their like head is bobbing while they're watching TV and then they go brush their teeth, wash their face, get in bed and they're wide awake, mm-hmm. right? No, 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 no. (laughs) Like, you know when you start to get tired. So give yourself maybe a half an hour before that. So let's say, let's take you, for example. What time do you usually, on average, get tired in the night? Uh, 10 o'clock, always. Okay, right? So 10 o'clock is your witching hour. So 9.30, I would say it's time to put down whatever it is you've got to do. You've got 10 minutes to just do something that you need to do because otherwise your next day is going to be stressful. 10 minutes for hygiene. And then 10 minutes for some form of meditation, relaxation, prayer, whatever you need to do. I don't care if you watch TV, read a book. I don't care. What I don't want you to do is try to get your high score on Candy Crush on your phone. You know what I'm saying? Right? I don't want an engaging activity. I want a relaxing activity, right? Because what we really are trying to do, and this is the big metric that very few people understand, is we want to get your heart rate at 60 or below in order to enter into a state of unconsciousness. So Mm. when I talk to people all the time and they're like, well, I get in bed and I turn off the light. It's the first time people aren't talking to me all day and asking me to do things. And all of this stress comes flooding into Mm -hmm. me. And then I think, did I say the right thing to my boss? Did I forget to do something for my kid? Is my partner uh, upset with me for something else? 
no, 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 no. That is not the time to be going over those things in your mind. What I would do is right after dinner, give yourself a half an hour, write all these things down on a piece of paper, write your list of worries or what I call a worry journal. Then across the page, draw a line in the middle, then across the page, put one step in solving that problem. So let's say your kid's having a hard time at school. Well, you're not going to solve the whole problem that night, but what you can write across, you can say, Johnny's having a hard time at school. And then across the way, you can say, tomorrow, email teacher. That's it. You've made a step of progress in that direction. You no longer have to worry about it because you're moving forward there, right? Move on to the second issue and just line it up. Then you actually have a to-do list for the next day, which is very, very helpful. Lowers your stress. You can kind of close the chapter, if you will, on it. And now it's time to focus on you, right? And getting that heart rate down. Now, the easiest way for people to get their heart rate down is a breathing method. Now, I want to be honest. I didn't come up with this. Dr. Andrew Weil developed this with Navy SEALs, believe it or not. And it's called 478 breathing. So this is where you breathe in slowly for a count of four. You hold for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of eight. What it does is it dumps any excess carbon dioxide in your, in your, uh, in your lungs and allows your lungs to not have to work as hard. So your, your heart gets to slow down and that's when you get a lower heart rate. It was uh, actually developed for Navy SEALs um, to be able to learn when to shoot um, and they, they fire in between heartbeats in order for it not to have an effect on the trajectory of the bullet. So it's, it's, and it's a super easy technique and you can go online and, and there's lots of videos and audios that'll kind of walk you through it. But I'm a huge fan of four, seven, eight breathing. I think that's one of the easiest ways for people to kind of chill out and relax before bed. That's really good to know. So I do want to ask you though, you're talking about these like 10 minutes of relaxation or meditating, praying in those 10 minutes, are you okay with scrolling on your phone, watching TV? Because you hear a lot of times like, get rid of the TV, get rid of the phones before bed. So I'm the only sleep doctor in the universe that says it's okay. I repeat, okay to watch television to fall asleep. I'm not a big fan of scrolling on the phone and I'll explain the difference in a second. If you're watching TV, right? You're laying back, right? And you're relaxing, right? Content is kind of flowing over you. You're not interacting with the content. Now I wanna be clear probably not the best idea to watch Game of Thrones, right? Like right before bed, right? So watch something that doesn't create, a, you know, maybe a comedy, um, something that's easy to watch, not something that you're intensely trying to focus on. When you're scrolling on your phone, it gets emotional whether you want it to or not. Somebody posts something on Facebook that you're joyful about or that you get upset about. Again, you're trying to get your high score on Candy Crush. That's not really trying to go to bed. So I don't have a problem if you're kind of closed your eyes and listening to TV. And to be fair, it's because of my wife. So my wife falls asleep with the television on every single night. I'm the sleep doctor, right? <laughs> and so I was like, let's let's pull the TV out of the bedroom. And she said, great, you can leave the bedroom as well. Oh, and so then funny. I said, okay, TV back in, I'm coming back in the bedroom. And I studied her. And what I discovered was that she's not even watching it. She's listening to it, right? And so her eyes are closed, but it's just enough of her to, of a distraction so that she doesn't get what she calls monkey mind which is just this spinning dial of a brain and she can't really stop thinking about it. So sometimes the TV is great. And let's be fair, 99% of the TVs have timers built into them. So it's just not that tough to be able to you know, set the timer. That's really interesting. I'm glad you explained all of that. Okay, so for those that struggle sleeping or have insomnia, what do you think about taking melatonin? I get asked that quite often. Mm -hmm. So great question. So melatonin is not a sleep initiator, melatonin is a sleep regulator. So remember when we were talking about sleep drive versus sleep rhythm? 
Melatonin only affects sleep rhythm. It has almost no effect on sleep drive. Melatonin is not, I repeat, not appropriate unless you have jet lag or shift worker or have ADD or ADHD. There's some data showing that now. Or you have a melatonin deficiency, which does tend to happen in people as they get older. So remember how I was talking about how at age 50, my melatonin kind of changed a little bit. In theory, I could probably be able to um, take some melatonin. But again, that's not my goal here. Also, remember, melatonin is a hormone. Okay, you wouldn't just walk down to the local drugstore and buy estrogen, right, or testosterone um, because it has major effects throughout the body. So you really want to be careful with this. Also, most melatonin is sold in an overdosage format, meaning it's not it's not correct. You can only find it in three milligrams, five milligrams, and ten milligrams. Turns out the appropriate dose is between a half and one and a half milligrams. Oh, wow. So you really have to be careful. Lower is better. Also, I want to be super clear. Melatonin is not for children, period, end of story. A lot of pediatricians say, oh, just give your kid some melatonin if they're not sleeping. Then you got a sleep problem and a pill problem. Like we don't really need to teach kids that they need to take a pill in order to do a natural process like sleep. Also, and this is going to be really crazy. Many people don't know that at high dosages, melatonin is actually a contraceptive. Wow. Right. So I can't think of anything worse for a young female developing body than the introduction of contraceptive when it's not required. I am so glad you just said all of that because I agree with you 100% and it's what I try to teach my followers. And so I'm so glad to hear it from you. But here's my question then, because I'll tell my followers like, no, do not do melatonin except for jet lag, things like you just said. And they always then ask, well, my kids have a hard time sleeping. So what do you recommend? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So for if it's for children, um, there's a few different things that we can think about. Number one, um, 95% or actually the data is actually more clear. 99% of children make four times the amount of melatonin that's required for them to fall asleep. So wow. melatonin is not appropriate. Okay. What's happening is, is your children aren't calming down and finding their chronotype and then going to bed according to that. You don't need to give a child a pill to make them sleep. That is a bad, bad precedent to set, number one. There is, however, I, I forgot to mention, there is one group of children where melatonin would be appropriate, and these are children on the autism spectrum. Um, there's a lot of data now to show that three to five milligrams, which is a huge dose in those kids, actually works really, really well because we think they have a melatonin deficiency, okay? Mm, okay. So you can only ever give children something uh, like melatonin if they had a deficiency. So what do you do if you've got a kid who doesn't, who's not willing to fall asleep and it's midnight and you want to go to bed? Number one, you got to educate them and explain to them, hey, like if, it, if you've got like my kids were super nerdy and they like to play video games and code. So I would say, here's the deal. You can't play video games unless you're, you know, your eyes are closed and you're quiet for, you know, a required amount of time, maybe seven hours in the evening. Some kids are sport kids, right? Explain to them, hey, sleep is going to help you compete better in sports, right? That be, and there's lots of data on that. Maybe your kid's into drama and dance and music. All of those are affected by sleep. Your ability to perform in everything is affected by sleep. So find the motivating factor that your child loves to do, attach it to sleep, and then say, look, sleep is just part of your training, right? If you're, if you know, if you know how to, if you're cross country and you're training, right, you know, you got to get your rest. If you're, you know, a, a brainy kid and you've got a big test the next day, you know, you got to get your rest. And so number one, attach sleep to something that's motivating for them. 
Number two is help them. Don't put a lot of distractions in their bedroom. They don't need to have video games in there. They probably don't need to have a television in there. They want to read books before bed. I don't think I care. I think that's probably a good habit. And then get them in that habit of keeping a consistent sleep schedule. I have never met a child that we couldn't get to go to sleep once we educated them, got them on a consistent schedule, and helped teach them better. But a lot of parents, to be fair, they don't want to deal. They're just like, I just want to give you this thing. It's going to make you feel sleepy and go to bed. That's just not the precedent that we want to be taking with our kids. Okay, so then what do you think about blue light glasses for the kids and maybe a magnesium deficiency? So here's the thing is you got to see if they really have a magnesium deficiency. So the very first thing that I do, so let's say, for example, that uh, you came to me and you said, Michael, I'm not sleeping so well. You know, what, what do you think I should take? The very first thing I would do is I'd say, go to your doctor and do some blood work. I want to see what deficiencies you have. Do you have an iron? Do you have a magnesium? Do you have a vitamin D or a melatonin deficiency? Those four things are critical for sleep. That's where we start with supplementation. Let's be fair. Nobody's got a deficiency of ashwagandha, right? Or valerian <laughs> root, right? It's just not how the body works. So let's make sure that the body is working well. So we've done the blood test and we found out that our child or our parent has got a magnesium deficiency and a vitamin D deficiency because quite frankly, most people do. That's where we start in terms of supplementation. Now, different people are gonna have different ones. I, since I'm not a pediatric specialist with adults, I usually start them out on 5,000 international units of vitamin D once a day. Um, and for magnesium, there's, believe it or not, eight different types of magnesium out there. So what I'd like to do is start people out on magnesium glycinate because it's easier on the stomach, maybe 200, 250 milligrams. A lot of people seem to prefer taking that in the evening in like a powder form or a pill form, whereas your vitamin D needs, since it's fat soluble, you need to take it in the morning with breakfast. Um, so you'd be vitamin D in the morning and you'd be magnesium in the evening. Also getting 15 minutes of sunshine every day is going to be very helpful in that vitamin D production. Then you do that for a month. Then we see what your sleep looks like, right? Then we look at things like iron and melatonin. Then we see what your sleep looks like. If your sleep is still messed up at that point, and you don't want to go the prescription route, which I get and understand. Then I start to look at natural supplements. Whew, sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, that makes sense because so many Americans are deficient in vitamin D and magnesium. And so if they both play a role in sleep, then that's a problem. Yeah, I find that and my husband finds that if we take magnesium at night, it helps a lot with the sleep. Absolutely. One other question about supplements, just because this one is trendy. And so I get asked a lot on this one too. And that is CBD. That's becoming a trendier yeah. thing to do when, if you have problems sleeping. So do you Let's like it, it, not like it? Mm -hmm. So I personally have written more about cannabis and sleep than any other sleep specialist in the country, probably north of 16,000 words at this point. And I'm a fan. So number one, I live in California where it's both medicinally and recreationally legal to use. So let's get that out of the way. You shouldn't be using cannabis in a state where it's not legal to use. Number one, you don't know what you're getting. So there's no definitive understanding of how much THC is in something and things like that. So I just want to be super duper clear. Let's say you're in a state where you can either get a med card or it's recreationally a viable thing to do. There is at this time, no data. I want to repeat this, no data to support the idea that CBD by itself helps you with sleep. There is data to show that CBD by itself helps you with anxiety and helps you with inflammation caused by pain. So mm. if your sleeplessness is due to pain 
or anxiety, CBD could be helpful for you. But I'm going to be fair. Look, I'm a doctor, so I don't like anybody vaping anything. So I would, I would recommend a tincture, like a dropper with liquid that goes under your tongue. But here's the real interesting part is if you're really looking for something from the cannabis plant that we know helps with sleep, it's not CBD, it's CBN as in nighttime. I was okay? just going to ask you that. Yep. So CBN is oxidized THC. So it's, it's kind of less effective THC and it just lowers the anxiety enough to allow that natural sleep process to take over. So there are many cases where I've actually taken my patients to the dispensary and I've said, okay, let's look at this cannabis product. We want to have low THC because here's the problem with THC. When you have too high of a THC, it knocks out REM sleep and it increases your heart rate. Two things that we really don't want to help with sleep, right? There's a big difference between st getting stoned and going to bed, right? There's the recreational side of, oh, I want to feel funky and have fun versus I want to use this as a medicine to help me sleep. You know, right now, there are very few, I would say, companies out there that have really done the science to start to look at that. But there are a couple, and I'm probably going to jump in the game at some point in time and start looking at some of these things as well, because I would argue that cannabis is going to bypass Ambien as a method for helping people sleep pretty quickly. Okay, really interesting, because my husband has used a CBN product. Mm -hmm. It's a yeah. product from a CBD company that makes it yeah. the CBN for sleep. And so he actually really enjoys it on hard nights, yeah. that, you know, having a hard time falling asleep. Absolutely. Okay. But do you recommend that for kids or no, just adults? So great question. So once again, you don't have a deficiency of CBD in your system or CBN in your system. When we're talking about kids, I never recommend cannabis for children ever, unless there's a seizure disorder and you're using something like Charlotte's Web. Right. So Charlotte's Web is a as a cannabis product that's very specific for very specific children who have different types of seizure disorders. But as a general guideline, once again, kids don't need CBD to help them okay. sleep. Kids need parents who set boundaries and make them go get to bed and go to sleep and understand the importance of sleep. So, no, I do not recommend CBD for children unless they fall into that Charlotte's Web category. OK, makes sense. Another sleep disorder that I want to talk to you about, and maybe it's not called a disorder, but I know it's affecting millions of Americans, and that's snoring. Snoring oh, yeah. is causing an issue with good sleep. So what so, do you recommend? It is actually a sleep disorder. It's on the spectrum of sleep apnea, right? So snoring is disordered breathing all the way to apnea, which is stopping of breathing. And, you know, a lot of people used to just call snoring a social nuisance, right? So, you know, people who were snoring and say, oh, that's my bed partner's problem. That's not my problem. I'm, I'm here to tell you, if you snore, number one, it is your problem because the happiness of your bed partner is certainly going to affect your relationship. But number two, you're not getting the air that you need. Like this is a serious situation. So number one, if your partner snores or you're told that you snore, get a sleep test um, and see if you might have sleep apnea. Here's the good news. You don't have to go to the hospital anymore. You don't have to see, even spend the night in a lab in most cases because, because when COVID hit, everybody started switching to these home sleep tests that are much more accurate now than they ever used to be. I mean, for like less than 200 bucks, you can actually order one of these tests online, have it sent to your house, wear it, send it back, have a doctor do a consult for you with telemedicine over Zoom, and you can figure this out very, very quickly. But let's say you don't have sleep apnea, you just snore, okay? Then what I tell people you got to do is decongest for better rest, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's the slogan that I have. Because here's the thing. If you got a stuffed up nose and stuffed up sinuses, 
100% you're going to be snoring. So the very first thing I tell people to do is maybe a saline wash or uh, maybe something like Flonase that they can take uh, in the morning time to open up their sinus passages, which is now available over the counter. Um, if that's not kind of your thing, there are now internal nasal dilators. So these are things that, yep, you shove something up your nose, it goes right up your nose, and it literally pushes all the tissue to the sides to allow you to be able to breathe. The way you want to think about snoring is kind of like this. If you've ever been in the garden, you know, when you put your thumb over the end of the hose and the, and the water squirts out faster than it did before, that's your, your nose is that hose. And anything that makes it more narrow, like the thumb going over the end, makes the air move faster. When the air moves fast, causes a vibration, causes a cadence, causes a snore. So what you got to do is open up the pipe. Right. However, that can be done, either reduction of nasal nasalar tissue that's been swelling or actually moving that. Now, a few other things that you need to think about when you think about snoring is, well, position. Most people snore in when they're lying on their back because gravity throws all of your anatomy towards the back of your throat, making it more narrow. So the old elbow to the side rotate works, but it doesn't necessarily work if you got sleep apnea. Right. So positional changes can actually be quite helpful um, for sleep. Um, or what I say is build a pillow wall. So you got a snoring bed partner. Remember, uh, snoring is sound is a matter wave, right? And so if you put a barrier between the sound, it's going to bounce back towards the snoring person. Number one, they're going to get the hint that you're putting a pillow barrier between you and them. But number two, that snoring is going to bounce back to them. And then they're going to turn to the side or something along those lines. So there are actually quite a few different things that people can do to help themselves with snoring. The final one is drop some weight. Um, if you drop approximately 5% of your body weight, so if you're 200 pounds and you drop 10 pounds, you can probably lower anywhere from probably 10 to 20 decibels of sound oh, from wow. that snore. And so why is it doesn't take a lot of weight loss to make it helpful. And why is that with the weight loss? Um, well, again, because it allows more air through, uh, through the pipes and allows uh, less of a cadence and less of a snore. Oh, interesting. Okay. So for those that are snoring, because my husband snores, it is a health issue, right? What are the health concerns? 100%. Are the health concerns just that you need good sleep and you're not getting good deep sleep snoring or are there other issues? Well, for some people, it could be pulmonary. Lung function could have something to do with it as well. To be clear, snoring is disordered breathing, right? And so anytime we have disordered breathing, it can have consequences long-term down the road. But in many cases, snoring eventually turns into sleep apnea. And we know that sleep apnea, again, where you stop breathing in your sleep, is a very big situation. We know it has effects cardiovascularly. Uh, we know it has effects on your heart, on your lungs, on your brain. Uh, people have strokes, death, like you name it, and it can happen from sleep apnea. And some people may not even know they have sleep apnea, right? Most people don't. Uh, as a matter of fact, most people have to be told by their bed partner, like, hey, I heard you last night and uh, you stopped breathing in your sleep. Like, that wasn't cool. What's going on? And then they have to get checked out. And then they get tested. Okay, so talking about sleep disorders and all of these issues as to why people can't sleep, do you recommend sleeping pills so that people can get a good night's rest or absolutely not? Great question. So I think that is a very personal question between you and your doctor. So do I have patients that are currently taking sleep aids? Yes, I do. Remember, I'm a PhD, not an MD. So these are prescribed by medical doctors that they're working with. There are some people out there that need a pill to sleep. 
There is nothing wrong with that, okay? I wanna be very, very clear. But if you're escalating in dosage or you've been on a sleeping pill for extended periods of time, there, there is some data to suggest that it can start to, over time, affect your ability to, for memory, affect your ability to problem solve, things like that. So as a general rule, we don't really like to have people on sleep aids for longer than six months to a year, if at all possible. But to be fair, I got some patients, they've been taking five milligrams of Ambien for 15 years. They're doing fine on it. I see no, I see no reason to change them. So I think there are situations where sleeping pills are appropriate, but I will argue, I think they're overprescribed by most physicians. We used to call insomnia what we call a door handle diagnosis, which means right when the doctor's got their hand on the door to walk out, the patient says, oh, by the way, I don't sleep so well. So they reach in their pocket, they say Ambien, 30 pills, call me in three months. And then the patient's hooked on Ambien, right? And there's no follow-up to teach them how to sleep better. So I really don't think it does a great job. Also, if you look at the data, cognitive behavioral therapy, if instituted correctly, not only works better than sleeping pills, but gives you a tool set that you can use for the rest of your life. Okay, so question for you. When people tell me like, oh, I used to be able to sleep fine and now I'm having a hard time sleeping, I usually tell them, well, that is your body like trying to communicate that it needs help, that there's some underlying root issue. So before we go on sleeping pills or things, isn't it important to try to figure out what those underlying root causes are? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Why are you more stressed? Could it be your thyroid? There's a whole host of medical reasons why somebody could have insomnia. And it's certainly worth talking with your doctor or a sleep specialist about it. And it could be something for women, especially something like your progesterone is too low, right? Absolutely. And with menopausal women, we always see sleep problems. Pre-menopause, during menopause, even post-menopause. It, we, whether it's hot flashes, whether it's insomnia, whether it's feeling exhausted all the time. And I have some women who just from their menstrual cycle, they feel differences where sometimes we'll even change their bedtime depending upon where they are in their cycle. So, you know, everybody's an individual. And so we have to look at it individually. And is it women have a hard time during menopause and perimenopause because of all the hormonal changes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So talking about menopause and perimenopause and those things, why during that time do people say, oh, I've slept eight hours and I'm waking up still feeling exhausted. Like I had two hours of sleep. Because it's a quality problem, not a quantity problem, right? So remember, when we were talking about the beginning of the show, a lot of people can sleep for eight hours, but if it's eight crappy hours, they're still not going to feel good. So as an example, if there's too much caffeine on board, if they had alcohol that night, maybe they didn't exercise that day, all these things combine to change sleep quality. So I created like a five-step plan for people that's super easy that we can give people whenever you want to tell them five simple things free, doesn't cost you a dime, and it can improve your quality of sleep, no question about it. Whether you're in menopause, perimenopause, or a kid? Yep, absolutely. Do you want to share one of those ideas of what they are? I'll share them all. How about okay. that? Okay, all right. Okay. So step number one is to have one consistent wake-up time. Now, notice I didn't say go to bedtime, only wake-up time. This is important because your body thrives on consistency, and the more consistent hopefully based on your chronotype, the better off you're gonna be able to sleep because your body knows when to fall asleep and when to wake up. Step number two has to do with caffeine. You wanna stop caffeine by 2 p.m. at the latest. Most people don't know caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours. And so if it's eight hours and you stop at two, then half is out of your system by 10, which is right around when most people, like you, start to get tired at night. And so we don't want it to affect the quality of our sleep. 
Step number three has to do with alcohol. We want to stop alcohol three hours before bed. And if you can, limit yourself to two drinks. When you get more than two drinks on board, you catch a big buzz. And when you do that, cortisol levels raise, and then you have energy, not sleep. So that's no bueno when it comes to sleep. Remember, there's a big difference between going to sleep and passing out, right? And that's usually from more alcohol than we really want. So step number three, stop alcohol three hours before bed. Step number four is to exercise daily. I can't emphasize this enough. And to be fair, you don't have to run a marathon. I'm talking about 10 to 15 minutes of cardio, maybe some weightlifting every single day. That is the single best way to improve sleep quality. But for some people, you don't want to exercise too close to bedtime. Now, there is some controversy about this in the literature, but as a general guideline, I tell people, if you can, stop exercise four hours before bed. And the last step, step number five, I call the three fifteens, which is three things I want you to do every single morning. So when you wake up, I want you to swing your legs over to the side of the bed and take 15 deep breaths. This is merely to kind of wake up your respiratory system to sort of bring you center, kind of wake you up for the day. Step number two, drink 15 ounces of water. Okay. Remember sleep is a dehydrative event. People lose almost a full liter of water every single night wow. that they're sleeping from just the humidity in their breath. So you really want to hydrate long before you caffeinate, okay? So 15 ounces of water. And then the third part is go over to the window or better yet, walk outside and get 15 minutes of sunshine. 15 minutes is the exact amount your body needs to generate vitamin D. And when sunlight hits your eyeball, you have a special cell in your eye called a melanopsin cell, which turns off the melatonin faucet in your head. So it helps with brain fog and all those different things. So as a summary, step number one, wake up at the same time every single day, hopefully based on your chronotype. Step number two, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Step number three, stop alcohol three hours before bed. Step number four, exercise daily, but stop exercise four hours before bed. And step number five is the 315s, which is 15 deep breaths, 15 ounces of water, and 15 minutes of sunshine. Those are amazing tips. Those are so great. Let me ask you about exercise. Why does exercise help with sleep? So we're not 100% sure, but there's a couple of different theories that are out there. So one thing is, is just tiring out the body um, and having those hormones generated and things of that nature. We know more about people who don't exercise and sleep than people who do exercise and sleep. But as a general rule, people who exercise, when you look at their sleep quality, they seem to do quite well. Also, the regularity of melatonin production seems to work well there. The other side of this is people who don't exercise have a tendency to gain weight. And when you have a tendency to gain weight, you snore, you have sleep apnea, you have disrupted sleep like we were talking about earlier. I love those five tips, but I thought one of them would be to manage your stress. So if you do those things, exercise should help you with managing your stress. But if I had to add one, managing stress would be good. But here's the problem. How do you do that, right? Like there's so many different ways. Like, do you take a cold bath? Do you do the steam shower and sauna? Do you exercise? Do you go to a therapist? Do you meditate? There's a gazillion different kind of ways to do that. So I hope that people can sit back and say to themselves, you know what? I've got to figure out a way to manage stress as a general guideline. And then that's incorporated into it. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Another question for you. Naps. Mm -hmm. I hear all the time, like, it's great to take a 15-minute nap during the day. Some will say, no, don't take the naps. It messes with your circadian rhythm. Like, what are your thoughts on naps? So I'm a big fan of napping, but only in certain situations. So as a general guideline, if you sleep well and you wake up and you feel good, you shouldn't need a nap, okay? If you're getting enough sleep and the sleep is of high quality, you really shouldn't need a nap. 
But let's say you only got five and a half hours because you have to catch a flight or you got a big presentation or something like that. A 15 minute nap is great. You never want to go over 20, 25 minutes because once you do that, you ever taken a nap and felt worse, not better? Yes. Right? Like I yes. have for sure. So that's when you nap too long. It's just really hard to wake up because of something called sleep inertia. So just taking a 25 minute nap is usually a good call for most people out there. And if you find that you need one every single day, then you may want to look at the quality of your sleep the night before. And so a two hour nap is not good for you. Bad idea, generally speaking. Okay, good to know. So one other question about helping people fall asleep at night. Another thing that I hear controversial things about, does it matter when you stop eating before you go to bed? Does that play a part in how you fall asleep? It does. Um, so remember, the body was meant for digesting food sitting or standing, not lying down. So what I use is what I call the three, two, one rule. So stop alcohol three hours before bed, stop food two hours before bed, and stop liquids one hour before bed, and make sure that you go to the bathroom before you fall asleep. Um, now, to be clear, if you've got diabetes or need to take medication or you need to be taking fluids up until bedtime, that's fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But as a general guideline, the three, two, one really seems to work quite well. Oh, that's really good advice. Well, you have answered so many questions for me that I know listeners have wanted to know and they ask me quite often. For those that are listening that just have a hard time sleeping and hate to go to even bed, that you hear these people that hate nighttime because of sleep. What's sure. your last bit of advice or little tip for them? So if you follow my five-step plan, I can actually promise you that your sleep will improve. It's not going to get, it might, might not be perfect, but if you just start to follow my five-step plan, I promise you, you, you will be very surprised at how much better sleep will be for you. The other thing is relax. Okay. Sleep really falls into two big categories is discipline and acceptance, right? So discipline are the things we've been talking about, my five-step plan, stuff that most people quite frankly already know. But let me be honest with you. There are some nights you're just not going to sleep well, right? I'll give you, I'll give you a personal example. So a few summers ago, my daughter's boyfriend broke up with her. She was a mess. She was crying. It was upset, all these different things. I didn't sleep very well because my daughter was upset. I did all the things correctly, but it doesn't matter because sometimes life gets in the way. I accepted that and I said to myself, okay, I'm not going to sleep particularly well tonight. I don't need to get all wound up about it. It's not like my head's going to pop off, right? It's not like, you know, some terrible thing is going to happen. I've had plenty of nights before where I haven't slept so well. So let me just chillax. Let me relax. Let me hang out and allow my body to just rejuvenate even though I'm awake. There's now data on something called non-sleep deep rest, which is just lying in a dark room, no noise, and just relaxing. It's actually rejuvenative. Now, to be fair, it's not the same as sleep. You do that for an hour, it's probably worth about 15 or 20 minutes of sleep, hmm. but it's still something. So what I tell people is it is not the end of the world to not be the greatest sleeper, okay? Follow the five-step plan. If that doesn't work, talk to your doctor, right? Find out if, if you can find a sleep specialist in your area. You can email me at my website. I help people find you know, sleep specialists around the country constantly. I'm happy to do it and teach you what to look for in a sleep specialist. Maybe consider cognitive behavioral therapy before a sleeping pill or something like that, or in conjunction with a sleeping pill. I have some people where we put them on a sleeping pill, we do cognitive behavioral therapy, then we get rid of the sleeping pill, and then they're off and running. So there are solutions. I don't want people to say there's no hope for me, but also 
it isn't the end of the world. I promise you, promise you, promise you. Like, you know, give yourself a break a little bit. You'll be surprised. Oh, I love that advice. Before I have you tell my listeners where to find you and where to come get more advice and things like that, I do have one last question that I forgot to ask you. And I know my listeners will hound me if I don't ask you this because they ask me this quite often. What about those people that fall asleep just fine and always wake up at like 3 a.m. in the morning with their mind on alert and they can't fall back asleep? What do you say to those people? So that is the number two question that I get asked across the board. Um, Number one is what bed should I buy? Oh, Um, interesting. (laughs) So for people who want to know about beds, if you go to my website, and we'll talk about that in a second, we actually did uh, bed reviews on over 150 beds where I tested all of the beds. So you can actually find what you're looking for there. And also to answer this question, I also want to say that we are going to include a link in the show notes to my YouTube video called How to Fall Back to Sleep. It's become quite popular, actually over 2 million views at this point, where I really explain things out about this whole process. But let me give people a few hints. So as your core body temperature goes towards the evening time, your core body temperature rises, 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 till it hits a peak right around 10, 1030, and then it begins to drop. That drop is a signal to your brain to release melatonin. So lots of people will fall asleep. This is, by the way, another reason why we like to keep our bedroom kind of cool to allow our core body temperature to continue to drop. It drops, 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 and then somewhere between one and three o'clock in the morning, it has to go back up. Otherwise you go hypothermic, which isn't good either, right? When you start to go back up between one and three, that's usually when people wake up. Mm. So I wanna be very clear, this is a biological process. Almost everybody out there wakes up between one and three. However, a lot of people fall back to sleep quite easily and they don't even remember waking up, but it's the people out there with insomnia that they that they do a, one of a few different things. So number one, don't go to the bathroom. Now, I wanna be clear, if you really have to pee, please go pee. But most people say to themselves, well, it's two, I kinda have to go, I'm gonna get up and go. Remember we were talking about the heart rate thing before oh, and you want yeah. your heartbeat to be 60? If you go from a lying position to a sitting position to a standing position and you walk across the room, I can assure you your heart rate is well above 60. So now you have to get back in bed and you have to you know, mm. get your heart rate back down. So if you don't have to pee, don't pee. Again, if you really gotta go, please go to the bathroom, <laughs> all right? Number two, don't look at the clock. Now, everybody <laughs> That's does <hard>. this. <laughs> yep. Everybody does it. And here's the problem is not only do you look at the clock, but you instantly do the mental math and you say, oh crap, it's three o'clock in the morning and I have to get up at six. Sleep, yep. sleep, yep. sleep. And you try to think your way to sleep. I want to be clear about something. Nobody in the history of time, in the history of time, has ever thought their way to sleep because activating the brain is doing the opposite of what we want to do, which is slowing the brain down. Okay. So trying to force yourself to sleep is never a good idea. This is where that four, seven, eight breathing comes into play that we spoke about earlier is getting people to understand that if they just can relax and get their heart rate back down, the natural sleep process can come into play. Also remembering about non-sleep deep rest in that even if you don't fall asleep, this is not an anxiety period of time. This is just a acceptance period of time and allowing your body to relax again long enough for your natural circadian rhythms to kick back into gear. So it's possible to go back to sleep. And I'll refer people to that video, which I think they'll find quite interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad I asked that. And so why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you? 
Absolutely. So I'm super easy to find. Um, you can go over to thesleepdoctor.com. That's my website. And there's all kinds of fun, interesting things that you can learn about there. We have tremendous amounts of information, lots of reviews of mattresses, toppers, pillows, because that's kind of the equipment, you know, of sleep. And we want to make sure people have good equipment for sleep. You can even actually get a sleep test done there if you want. I also own all the social properties. So if you want to find me on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. I do a lot of videos there as The Sleep Doctor. Again, easy to find, good, solid information. And then if you want to learn what your chronotype is, you can go to The Sleep Doctor or Chrono Quiz. And then of course there's YouTube where I'm actually at The Sleep Doctor as well. Well, I'm excited to go watch that video. You said you'll put the link in the show notes and I'm excited to go watch that. But also you have some books that can help people oh, yeah, as well. Oh yeah, that's right. I do. I've been very fortunate. I've written four books. The one that I think people get the most out of is called The Power of When, and that's all about chronotypes, which we discussed a little bit earlier. Cross your fingers. I'm going to have another book coming out probably in 2025. Oh, good for you. And so I'm assuming yeah. they can find the book on your website, Amazon. Website, Amazon, you name it. I'm all over the place. Okay, so good. You guys, he has been a wealth of knowledge as you've seen or listened to today. And so go follow him, go learn more from him. Thank you so much for being here on the show today. I end my podcast by asking every guest what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Best ingredient in life. Wow, that's, I only get one ingredient? <laughs> yeah, you could have a multiple if you want. So I think joy is a really, really important ingredient. I also think persistence is really an important ingredient. Like, don't let people tell you no, okay? Like, when I got into this 23 years ago, people didn't even know what a sleep doctor was, okay? So if you've got a gift, if you've got a, a, a mission, a purpose, you know, be consistent, keep going for it. Don't, don't take no for an answer. And then the other side of that is, is make sure there's joy in your life. Make sure you're moving towards something that makes you feel good, that makes you feel joyful, whether that's a person and relationship, whether that's your children, whether that's your dog, whatever it is, but you, somewhere you need a balance between joy and purpose. And I think that's kind of the way to go. That is great. I love that. Persistence is a great one. Not many have said that. And I love that because it's true. People will tell you no all the time and just be persistent and do. Keep going. Exactly. Well, thank you again for being here today. We have learned so much from you. I am excited to go watch that YouTube video and delve into your social media accounts. And thank you. I know the listeners have learned a ton. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. And Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, wishing everybody out there sweet dreams. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. 